You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. We're going to begin this morning by reading our text as we continue in our study of Romans. Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound by no means? How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that those of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that as we study your word today, Lord, enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we might see glorious things in your word, Lord, that we might understand the gospel and that it might move on our hearts and motivate us in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one of the big questions that people ask, these big meta questions, right, that people ask is, can people really ever truly change? I mean, a lot of times it feels like the answer is no. I mean, how many times have you heard it said, you know, this or that person, hey, look, they just are the way they are. They're not going to change. You just got to deal with it and accept it. Or maybe, you know, you yourself, you would say, you know, I have a bad habit or I have this thing in my life that I know isn't good or you have an addiction that you struggle with and you know it's wrong. You, you, you feel ashamed of it, but you just feel powerless to stop. And you've tried, but you just keep sliding back into it. You know, one of the most popular genres of books and podcasts and videos around is the genre of self-help. And that's kind of funny because on the one hand, our culture really is into this idea of affirmation. You're awesome just the way you are, like don't ever change anything. And yet on the other hand, uh, we are pushing out so many books, you could never read them all in a lifetime, that are all about how you're not okay and you actually need to change everything that you're doing and here's how. And it would seem that people are not happy with the way they are. Otherwise, they wouldn't be buying these books, right? It would seem that for a lot of us, there are things that we want to change about ourselves. There are things that we are not satisfied with when it comes to ourselves. You know, a while back, I was listening to an audiobook on the, it was a productivity book. And uh, the author kept saying, hey, you know, you're perfect just the way you are. Don't change anything. But the whole point of the book was about how telling you all the things that you're doing wrong and how to change them. And the only reason anyone would ever listen to this book in the first place was because they didn't like something in their life and they wanted to change it. So this age-old question, though, that underlies all of that is, is change even possible? Like, can, can a person really change at their core? I mean, it's one thing to change on the outside. You can change your physical appearance, but what about changing underneath? Right? What about changing on the inside? Can you really change who you fundamentally are? Or what about those habits and those uh, attitudes, those stubborn, persistent sins which are part of your life? Is that just who you are? Is that just the way it's always going to be? Or is it actually possible to really experience deep and lasting change at the very core of who you are? And if so, how does that change come about? So those are the questions that Romans chapter 6 is dealing with specifically. And it gives us a message of incredible hope. I want you to see that today because here's what it tells us. Yes, a person can change. You can change. And the way that change happens is by God's grace coming into your life as you embrace the gospel. So let me give you a recap. Up until this point, uh, in the letter to the Romans, Paul has shown us two things. He's shown us why we need the gospel, 
and he's shown us how the gospel works, how the gospel saves us. He started out in chapters 1 through 3 telling us why we need the gospel. He said, the reason is because we are unrighteous, but God is righteous, and God's judgment is coming upon all unrighteousness. Then in the second half of chapter 3 and into chapter 5, he talked about how the gospel works. How does the gospel actually save us? And he showed us that we are justified. In other words, we're made right with God, not by what we do, but by what Jesus did for us, and we receive that by faith. Then in chapter 5, he answered that question of like, hey, how can it be that the actions of one man are able to save all people? How does that work? So now we come to chapter 6. And, and from chapter 6 through chapter 8, Paul is now going to be talking about the implications of the gospel for our lives. The implications of the gospel for our lives. Like, like, what does this mean for us practically? These truths that we've been talking about. What do they mean for us practically? Not just in heaven someday in the future, but how do they work out for us on like a Tuesday at work or at home on a Saturday? Like, how does the stuff that we talk about on Sundays affect our Mondays? Now, now what we've seen so far up through chapter 5 is that what makes Christianity unique, what sets Christianity apart from every other religion, every other philosophy that exists in the world, is the message of grace. This is what differentiates Christianity from every other thought system, belief system, religion. Grace. Grace can be defined as a gift. A gift is not something that you earn. It's not something that you deserve. It's something that someone gives you simply because they want to. And, and whereas every other religion and every other philosophy in the world says, if you want to be right with God, well, here's a laundry list of things that you need to do. And if you try hard enough and you do enough and you work hard enough and you do it well enough, then maybe you can earn favor with God and maybe you can work your way up to God. But Christianity says something completely different. Christianity gives us a higher view of God and a higher view of sin than, than any other religion. It says that God is so great and your sin and my sin is so serious that it would be impossible for us to ever work our way up to him. But the good news is God loves you so much that rather than waiting for you to impossibly work your way to him, he has come down to you. That is the good news of the gospel. So salvation isn't something that we can earn. It's not something that we do earn. It's a gift that he gives us. It is a work of God on our behalf, and we receive it by faith. And so salvation is by grace. We've established that point so far here in Romans. We don't deserve it. We didn't earn it. It's a gift. But the next question is, okay, I understand that we're saved by grace, but how do we change? Like, how do we change from who we are now to who we know that we ought to be, to, to who God wants us to be? You know, in theological terms, we call that sanctification. In other words, so we're saved by grace, but how does sanctification happen? How do we, how do we go through that process? How do we change from who we are into who we know that we ought to be and who we know that God wants us to be? We're saved by grace, but how do we change? How does that change happen practically? And what Paul says here in Romans chapter 6 is that the way that change takes place in our lives is also by the work of God's grace. It is an act of God, but we have a role to play in the process as well. And that's what we're going to talk about today. There are three big issues that are addressed here in the first 14 verses of Romans chapter 6. And we're going to look at those. So first, in verse 1, we're going to see the problem with grace is, then from verses 2 through 11, 
We're going to see the question, can a tiger change its stripes? And finally, from verses 12 through 14, we're going to talk about how to live as a free person. Okay, so let's begin by talking about the problem with grace. In verse 1, Paul says, what shall we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may abound? So at the end of chapter 5, where we left off a couple weeks ago, Paul told us that we are saved by God's grace, and where sin increases, grace increases all the more. In other words, there is no sin so great, there is no sin so much, that God's grace isn't bigger and greater and more than that sin. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter who you've been with, no matter what you've done, you never have to wonder if God has enough grace for you. He absolutely does. But the problem with grace is that some people hear that, and rather than being relieved, they feel intrigued. They hear that message of grace, and rather than seeing the solution they've always needed, they see in it the opportunity they've always wanted. So when I was pastoring in Hungary, I had this situation happen. This girl uh, came to our church, and she was in her late teens, and she came up to me one day after church, and she said, hey, I've been thinking about something. I wanted to just let you know about it. So she said, Well, so, you know, sometimes I hear people give their testimony, right, their story of how they came to faith in Jesus and and what God has done in their lives. And, you know, a lot of these testimonies I hear that are really powerful, they involve people like, you know, they were on drugs, they were homeless, and they shot drugs in their eyeballs, and they went and partied, and they did everybody in town. And, like, it's like, you know, they, they were doing all these things, and they were in all this really bad stuff, and then God saved them out of it. And, and it's glorious, and everybody hears those stories, and they're like, wow, God's amazing. But, and she was like, but you know, I don't have a story like that. I just grew up in a small town, and I started coming to church one day, and I believed, I got baptized, and I've never done anything really bad. So I was thinking that what I should do is, in order to have a powerful testimony, she's like, well, I got these friends, right? And I was thinking I could go with them for a little while and do some of the stuff that they're doing, you know, like parties and drugs and sleeping around. And, and that way, in the future, I'll be able to relate to people better, right? Like, like I'll be able to say, hey, I've been there. Hey, I used to do this and I used to do that, but now I'm walking with the Lord and it's so much better. Or like, hey, yeah, I did all that stuff, but God forgave me and he can forgive you too. And she was like, plus, I figure, what's the big deal anyway? Because if I go and do these things, God is going to forgive me anyway, so I might as well. I mean, why not? I'll just do those things for a while, and then in a little bit, I'll come back, and I'll repent, and I'll say I'm sorry, and God will have to forgive me, because that's how it works. It's all about grace, right? Like, God will forgive me no matter what I do, so hey, why not do some of those things that I can do? So I'm going to go do some things, even though I know that they're wrong, and then I'll just come back, and I'll ask for forgiveness. And, uh, and if you think about it, she was like saying, the more God forgives the more that brings him glory. So if you think about it, I'm actually kind of doing God a little bit of a favor here. Like I'm kind of helping him out. I'm helping bring him more glory by by doing these, these things. So, hey, everybody wins, right? Now let me ask you this question. Have you ever had those kind of thoughts? Maybe not so overtly, but have you ever had those kinds of thoughts? Like, yeah, okay, I know that this isn't right, or, you know, this thing is not completely ethical, or maybe this isn't totally legal, but hey, look, God's going to forgive me anyway, so so I'm just going to do it anyway, and then I'll just ask for forgiveness later. I mean, Jesus said it's finished, right? So he already paid the price for all the sins that will ever be committed, so if I sin some more, it's not like he's not going to forgive me. And it's kind of like these people are like, they found 
the ultimate loophole in Christianity. Like they found the glitch in the system. They found the hole in the system, the big loophole, the flaw in the design. And, you know, they're basically like, wow, so really I can kind of do anything I want. And then all I have to do is come back and say, sorry, God, please forgive me. And then he has to forgive me. So then I'm good again and I'm justified, you know, justified, like just as if you never sinned. That's what we always say about justification. So boom, huge loophole, awesome. That's how some people look at it. And so some people would say, hey, God loves sinners. I've got an idea to help God really love me. I I think I can help God with that. Like it brings God glory to forgive sin. I think I can help bring God a lot of glory. And uh, you know, like my job's to sin, God's job's to forgive. So I'm going to do my job as well as I can. Like that's how some people look at it, right? And, And so some people would say, you see, that's the problem with grace. The grace, if people actually hear it, it's going to lead to licentiousness. You know, and Jude talks about this in the book of Jude, that little book that's right at the end of your Bibles, right before Revelation. It's one chapter long. In the epistle of Jude, Jude talks about this, and he says that there are some people who have perverted the grace of God, and they have turned it into a license for immorality. They've perverted the grace of God, and they've turned it into a license for immorality. Jude says some people, right, they take the grace of God as if it's like a license to sin, just like you've got a license to drive, and you've got a license to fish. Like it's it's a permission to do that activity. And there are some people who look at God's grace that way, as if because of what Jesus did on the cross to pay the price for their sins and redeem them, now they've got like carte blanche to do whatever they want with impunity. And this is why a lot of people would say, Look, I, I understand this teaching about grace and, you know, that our status before God is based on what Jesus did and not on what we do or don't do. Uh, that might be true, like theologically, but I'm not sure it's helpful to tell people that. Because if you tell people that, right, that, it, that their status before God, that God's favor and blessing in their life is not predicated on their performance, but on Jesus' performance on their behalf, Well, that's not going to encourage people to live lives of holiness and godliness. Instead, you're going to end up with Christians gone wild. Because if if word gets out that God loves sinners, people are going to be like, well, I can help him really love me. If it brings glory to God to forgive sins, some people are going to be like, well, I'm going to bring God a lot of glory. They're going to take it as a challenge. But notice what it says there in Jude, that this is a perversion of God's grace. It's a twisting of it. It's making it into something that it was never meant to be. So in other words, the problem with grace It's not actually a problem with grace at all. It's a problem with us, that we take something good and we pervert it. And so the question is, what should we do? That's that's what he's asking here. What should we do? If the problem with grace is that some people will take it as an encouragement to sin more, then doesn't that mean that we should kind of dial back on talking about it? Like maybe we, if we really want to help people change, then what we need to do is lay down the law. We need to give them more rules, stricter rules, more accountability, stricter Let's find out. We see the answer to that in verse 2, starting in verse 2. Can a tiger change its stripes? So in response to the question which he poses in verse 1, then he begins in verse 2. He says, you know, first he says, hey, look, if we're saved by grace, it brings God glory to forgive us. Then, hey, why not just continue sinning a bunch so that grace can abound? And Paul says in verse 2, no way. Like, are you kidding me? Like, get out of here. Like, how can we who died to sin still live in it? That's what he asked. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And this is the key. This is the answer to the question that we've been asking. Can a person really ever change? And if so, how does that change actually happen practically in their lives? What needs to happen in order for a person to be radically and fundamentally changed at their core? And the answer is this. 
The only way for me to change, the only way for you to change, is for us to die. It's for us to die and then be born again. See, there's an old saying about how people never change, and that is, can a tiger change its stripes? Can a leopard change its spots? And the, the implication is no. Like a tiger will always be a tiger. A leopard will always be a leopard. A cheater will always be a cheater. A liar will always be a liar. You know, whatever it is, however you dress a person up, no matter how many times you, you bathe them and try to make them look good, they just are who they are. People don't change. No one can change who you are or who anybody else is. Unless, of course, I mean, a tiger can't change their stripes, but unless that tiger were to die and then be born again as a completely different creature. But I mean, isn't who ever heard of something like that happening? But what the Bible's telling us here is that that is exactly what happens to a person when you put your faith in Jesus. You experience a kind of death. Your old life, the old person who you used to be, dies, ceases to exist. The old Nick is gone. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 puts it this way. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. See, that's the same thing that we read in verse 6. Here in Romans chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, they read like this. We know that our old self was crucified with Jesus in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been set free from sin. The old me was nailed to the cross with Jesus. Why? In order to set me free. There's an old movie called Spartacus. It has Kirk Douglas in it. And in this movie, Kirk Douglas plays Spartacus, who is, who is an escaped slave who leads a slave rebellion. And there's this, this incredible line in the movie where someone asks Spartacus, you know, aren't you afraid of dying? Aren't, you know, you're doing all these things. Aren't you afraid of dying? Aren't you afraid of death? And here's what Spartacus says. He says, no, I'm not afraid of dying because death is the only freedom a slave will ever know. Death is the only freedom a slave will ever know. You see, here's the thing. The old me was a slave. I was a slave to sin. There were things in my life that had mastery over me. And that's true of all of each of us, all of us. If you look down at verse 16 of chapter 6, here's what it says. It says that our relationship to sin was not, it wasn't something we dabbled in. It wasn't a, a little hobby we had. We were enslaved to it. We were slaves to sin. We, we're in bondage to it. We're not free people just doing whatever we want. We are in bondage. We are slaves to sin. We are not free. But the good news the great news of the gospel is that by the grace of God in Christ, we have died and been raised to new life. And the death of the old person means that we are now free from the slavery that we were in. We're free from the bondage, that obligation that we were in. If you have died, you're no longer a slave. Death is the only freedom a slave will ever know. And we have died in Christ. And so let's go back to verses 3 and 4. It says this, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Baptism is a tangible, visible picture of what happens inside a person when they unite themselves to Jesus. We just did a baptism a few weeks ago. 
And the way we do baptism here at Whitefields, we like to submerge a person all the way underwater. And there are a couple reasons for that. And let me tell you what those are. Number one, the Greek word for baptize is baptizo. It's very close to English. And what it means, it literally means to submerge. So if the word baptize means to submerge, well then I think we should just submerge. So the second reason is this, because what this verse is telling us is that baptism is a symbol of death and resurrection. It's not just a symbol of being washed clean. It's a symbol actually of death and resurrection. That as the person goes under the water, it's a symbol of death and burial together with Christ. And as they come out of the water, it's a picture of rebirth and resurrection to new life in Christ. In other words, the old you has died and you become a new person if you put your faith in Jesus. This is what the Bible talks about when it uses this curious phrase, born again, right? Jesus told this man named Nicodemus, right? Remember what he said? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. In First Peter, Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And the idea is this, that when you put your faith in the gospel, the good news of what Jesus did for you, something radical takes place inside of you. You experience death and rebirth. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 puts it this way. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone. Behold, the new has come. The idea of a new creation, it means that you are a new creature. You have a new identity. And as a new creature, another part of that is that you have new desires, right? Like a sheep is a very different creature than a pig. And a sheep desires completely different things than a pig desires. They crave different things. They live for different things. And in the same way, we have become new creatures through this death and rebirth that we've experienced in Christ. And as a result, we have fundamentally different desires than we did before. There's an interesting thing uh, that we read in 1 John, the, the little short letter of 1 John. Here, here's, I'm going to read you two verses. Number one, uh, it starts in chapter 3, verse 9. John says this, No one who has been born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So, so he's saying that if a person has been born of God, they don't go on sinning. Right? That's what Paul asked. Should we go on sinning? By no means, if we've been born again. Now, that doesn't mean that you will never, if you become a Christian, that you will never struggle with sin again, or you'll never sin again, or even that you will never uh, struggle with habitual sin. Because here's, here's what it says in, in another part of that same letter. First John, he says this, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So what he's saying is that a person who's become a Christian... It's not saying that you will never struggle with sin, nor is it saying that you will never even struggle with habitual sin ever again. But what it means is that at your very core of who you are, there a change has taken place. The new you, the new true you, desires, lives for, wants to please God, and wants to live a holy life of, of following him. It's kind of like that, that analogy, right? Like a pig and a sheep. They're very different creatures, but both of them on occasion might fall into some mud. The difference is that the pig lives for the mud. They dream about the mud. They, they're trying to figure out how they can find some more mud. Whereas the sheep might fall in the mud, but it's not what they live for. It's not what they truly desire in their heart of hearts. Now in 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, write that word practice. No one who has been born of God continues to practice sin. That makes all the difference, that word practice. 
You can think of it like practicing your golf swing or like practicing the guitar, right? Like you wake up in the morning and you look yourself in the mirror and you're like, you're going to do even better today than you did yesterday, right? Like you want to do it better. You want to do it really well. That's the idea of practicing sin. It's the idea of living in it and tolerating it and being completely at home in it and comfortable with it. And what he's saying is a person who has died to sin can no longer go on that way. They can no longer go on feeling that way or living that way. If they've been to raise to new life in Christ, if they've become a new creation, no longer under the authority of sin, they're free from the power of sin, and they have a new and different desire in their heart. Their most fundamental desire is to live for God and to please God. In other words, the gospel is dynamite that produces deep and massive changes in our lives. And so this question, can people really change and how does that change take place? Here's the answer. Yes, people can really change. And that change takes place when you embrace the gospel and and God's transforming work comes into your life. And the old you dies and you're born again to Christ. You're a new person with new desires. No longer a slave to sin. No longer a slave to your old habits and addictions. But in Christ, you're a free person. And so finally, let's conclude with these two final verses, or three final verses. How do we live as free people? How do we live as free people? We've seen here in in chapter 6 so far, a person who is living in sin is not a free person, right? But in Christ, we have been set free, not only from the penalty of sin, but also from the power of sin. So here in, in verses 12 through 14, we're given three practical things we can do in order to live as free people. Three practical things we can do. Number one, in verse 12, we're told that we are free to resist. We're free to resist. He says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, make you obey its passions. You're free to resist. Because sin no longer has dominion over you, you are free to resist it. You have the power to say no to it. Now, I I was thinking about this idea of slavery, and it brought to mind slaves in the southern United States And how when Abraham Lincoln gave the Emancipation Proclamation that set all the slaves free in one moment, all these people who had been slaves were set free. They were no longer slaves. They were free men and free women in that moment. And from that point forward, when their former masters came to them and made demands on them or or mistreated them for the first time in their lives, they were free to resist. They were free to say no. But another thing I've read about these slaves is that after the Emancipation Proclamation was given, many of the former slaves, even though they were legally free, they actually continued to live and function as slaves. Right? They were legally free, but functionally they were still slaves. Why? Because they were too afraid to resist their masters, even though they had the legal right to do so. And that's a very powerful picture for us to consider. It's a very powerful picture for us to consider in light of ourselves. And what it means is that it's possible to be legally free and yet continue to live as if you're still a slave. And there are a lot of people, there are a lot of us who do that very thing. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul says this, this very profound statement, very powerful statement. He says, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. So stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. In Christ, not only have we been set free from the penalty of sin, we've also been set free from the power of sin and the authority of sin. And what that means is that we have the power in Christ to say no to temptation when it comes our way. When your old habits rear their heads and try to bring you back into submission, you can resist, and in Christ, you can overcome. 
In verse 13, the next practical thing, the second practical thing is this. The best way to don't is to do. So the best way to don't is to do. It says this in verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Now, the word member, think of the idea of dismemberment, right? It refers to your extremities, the parts of your body, the different parts of your body, so your hands, your feet, your arms, your legs, your eyes, your ears, your lips, your mouth. It's saying that one of the most practical things you can do in order to keep living as a free person in the freedom that you've been given in Jesus is to conscientiously dedicate the parts of your body to be used for God's purposes, for good and not for evil. In the Old Testament, there's a very vivid picture of this with how the priests were dedicated for service in ministry. In the book of Exodus, chapter 29, we read about the dedication ceremony that every priest would go through. And what they would do is that they would take sacrificial blood and they would apply it to the ear, to the big toe, and to the thumb of every priest. And it was a very vivid, very picturesque way of stating that the priest's hands were dedicated to God. They were consecrated to be tools for God's work. His feet were consecrated to be tools for God's work. His head, his mind, his mouth, his eyes, his ears, they were set apart to be tools used only for God's work. And what's interesting about verse 13 here in chapter 6 is that the word instruments can also be translated as tools or it can also be translated as weapons. And so the idea is this. If your body parts are tools, whose tools will they be? Whose tools will they be? And, and what do you want them to be used for? Do you want them to be used for God's work or for the enemy's work? If the parts of your body are weapons, then whose side do you want them to be used for in the spiritual battle that we're in? And here in chapter 13, we get this picture of being proactive rather than reactive. Proactive rather than reactive. Rather than just waiting for temptation to come your way and then trying as hard as you can to resist it. Instead, what you're saying is, before the temptation comes, I'm going to keep my hands and my feet, my eyes and my ears, I'm going to keep them busy, dedicated to the work of the Lord. I recently read a book about habits, right? And, and what it said is that habits are extremely difficult to overcome because they create pathways in your brain. And unless you replace a habit with another habit, it's, it's not very likely that you'll ever overcome it. And so the idea here is that rather than focusing all your attention on trying hard to quit certain sinful habits, the best thing you can do is be proactive and to do in order to don't, right? In other words, the best thing you can do is to dedicate your members to God as instruments for righteousness. What is the new thing that I can do with my hands? What is the new thing that I can do with my mind, with my feet, with my lips that will glorify God? See, if you dedicate and occupy all the members of your body for his work, that's a powerful way to stay free from the old destructive patterns and ways because you're too busy doing his work. You don't have time for that other stuff. And then finally, in verse 14, we see that, that, that grace is the key to being free. For, he says in verse 14, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but you are under grace. It's interesting, right? It's actually unexpected to me to read that. How is it that grace is the key to being free from sin's mastery over us? Well, here, here's how. Because, see, laws and rules can influence the way that we behave outwardly, but they can't change who we are inwardly. They can't affect who we are underneath on the inside. It's only an act of grace 
that can come into our lives and fundamentally change who we are, put to death the person we were, and cause us to be born to new life on the inside. You see, it isn't just that we are saved by grace. It's also that we are changed by grace. See, some people would say, okay, maybe we're saved by grace, but the way that we change is by rules and, and restrictions and laws. And the Bible's saying no. It's saying right here, no, the way that we're changed is by an act of grace, a gift, an act of God by which he makes us into new people with a new status, a new identity. It's because of grace that we can be free. Titus chapter 2, it tells us that when we really come to understand the grace of God, it doesn't lead to licentiousness and sin and loose living. Actually, just the opposite. Look at what it says in Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people and training us. The grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Augustine, the, the early church father, he said this, What really defines a person, what defines you and me more than anything else, is what we love. What you love is the greatest definer of who you are. And he said, therefore, if you want to change a person, the most effective way to change a person is to change what they love. And what happens with the grace of God is that as you fix your eyes on Jesus, as you see him who gave up his throne and laid down his crown, he laid down a crown of glory and he took up a crown of thorns so that you could receive a crown yourself. So in order to be, so that he could save you. If you look at him who took the storm of God's wrath in order to rescue you, as you see him who gave up his life in order to give you life, as you consider God's grace to you, you are changed and transformed, and you will see God's grace not as a license to sin, but as the basis for a life of worship and devotion to him. Amen? Would you please stand with me and let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace in our lives. Thank you, Lord, that your grace has come into our lives, bringing salvation to us. Lord, we pray for, for those things in our lives that we struggle with, those old habits, the old ways, the things that we know, Lord, aren't, aren't pleasing to you. Lord, would you help us to live in this freedom that has been given to us in Jesus? Help us to live and walk as free people and to walk in newness of life. Lord, I pray for anybody here who says, you know what, I haven't experienced that. I've never experienced that thing you're talking about where you die to who you were and are raised to new life in Christ. Lord, I pray if there's anyone in here who would say that, that even now as we are praying, that they would step across that line, that they would put down their yes and say, yes, Jesus, I receive this gift of your grace. I receive what you did for me on the cross where you took my sins upon yourself. I receive this resurrection life that you desire to give me. But I pray that all of us in here today, whether we've received it 500 times or whether this is the first time, that today we would say, yes, Lord, we receive the gospel, we receive your grace, and we use grace as the basis for a life of dedication to you. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.